Today's guest on the My Climate Journey startup series is Jack Morrison, CEO and co-founder at Scythe. Scythe recently announced a $42 million Series B round of financing led by Energy Impact Partners to grow and scale their product line of autonomous electric commercial lawnmowers. When we talk about the need to electrify everything, we tend to focus on electric vehicles and home efficiency. But over the next five to 10 years, I think most of us will be surprised by just how many things in our daily lives will move from loud, smelly, gasoline-powered engines to quiet, odorless electric motors. On this podcast, we've featured electric solutions for pleasure craft boating, motorcycles, passenger buses, semi-trucks, and even cargo shipping. And in most cases, the business models of the electric versions of these things are innovative in some way or another, too. The Scythe team is pioneering a new usage-based model for their mowers and believe that it offers a more sustainable way for landscaping companies to manage their cash flows and help their employees get the job done. But before we dive in... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Jack, welcome to the show. Hey, Cody. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Jack, you have been building robots, from what I could see, at least, on your LinkedIn your whole life. There's something on the very earliest entry of your LinkedIn profile about building an autonomous humanoid soccer robot. So... Maybe walk us through your robot building background and get us up to where you are today. Sure. Uh, I should own up. My background is very much purely on the software side of things. Scythe is really my first foray into building a team that builds robots. I studied computer science in undergrad, fell in love with programming and robots through this competition called RoboCup that I did as an undergraduate at a liberal arts school in Maine fell ass backwards into robotics and making machines play soccer autonomously. Uh, It was this amazing international competition, travel all over the world to compete against other schools in who could program robots the best. We bought off-the-shelf robots, would program them to play soccer. At first, it was one-on-one, and then we got up by the time I graduated to four-on-four games of soccer. Just really fell in love with the ability to make real things happen, like real world interactions occur with your software, which is to me a lot more interesting than pushing pixels around on the screen, though there's a lot you can do with that as well, of course. And after graduating, I ended up doing some basically various types of computer vision work. So that's making machines understand the world around them for government applications, military things. I ended up starting a PhD in computer vision and robotics Before dropping out a year later, I sort of realized that the academic world was not for me. I felt like there was a lot of more exciting things happening in startups at the time and actually left to start my own 3D scanning company back in 2015. We ended up selling that business to another company here in Boulder, Colorado. And yeah, I joined on there to lead computer vision efforts and build the future of 3D scanning. And that's where I met my co-founder, Davis, and we got to work side by side building the future of 3D scanning. And the two of us and Isaac, our third co-founder, ended up leaving that company 
mid-2018 to start Scythe Robotics. And how did you go from building this situational 3D scanning technology to let's focus on the landscaping industry? Yeah, not quite so related, but I promise there's a tie there. I wanted to get back into embodied robotics where we're actually having this impact on the world, writing software to change something about the world. But I really didn't want to build a robotics company that was just making robots because they were cool. I mean, they are cool, but I really felt like there was huge potential for what automation could bring to the world. And I saw a lot of friends going into robotic startups, sort of the mid-aughts that really just felt like they didn't have, they're sort of science experiments of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have a robot deliver my burrito without the business case that like of robot delivered burrito is any better than a regular burrito. And with that swirling around in my head and seeing the technological hurdles that a lot of the on-road autonomous vehicle companies were going through, wanted something that would thread this needle of what I saw of like something that really had a big impact on the world, but was technologically feasible without necessarily having to put $10 billion plus into it. So you could get it out into the world on a much shorter time frame than it felt like a lot of the on-road autonomy was going to take. And one day I had a light bulb moment mowing my own lawn in Colorado where I realized, A, I really don't like mowing my lawn. B, I'm not good at it. And C, it was sort of this perfect opportunity for robotics because it met those goals, right? There's this huge labor crisis we can talk about in the landscaping industry. It's not As hard as on-road autonomy, there's just a much more controlled environment. And yeah, with those two things, we dove headfirst into landscaping. Amazing. Well, the primary reason I wanted to have you on today was I feel like with what you're building at Scythe, you are the embodiment of the movement to electrify everything. The notion of commercial landscaping and commercial mowers, at first blush, doesn't seem like the thing that needs to get electrified first and foremost, but if we are in fact electrifying the entire world, there's a decent chunk of emissions that come out of this space. And the more I have thought about it since you and I first met, the more I see mowers, lawn equipment, all of this stuff everywhere. It is pervasive. As long as there are, there's green grass to grow, there is green grass to cut. And so I'm interested to hear your perspective on how you think about the climate footprints or the climate impact of the landscaping business and what you think Scythe's role is in helping to curb the emissions footprint there. Yeah, everybody who starts at Scythe all of a sudden starts seeing all of the mowers around town and has that moment of like, holy crap, there are a lot of these things. They're everywhere. Every stoplight you pull up to, there's a mower on a trailer or three mowers on a trailer. It's this industry that's really in the background for most people. And and again, I think that's why I was really attracted to it is it's out of sight, kind of out of mind, but yeah, has this massive impact on our day-to-day health in urban environments. Green space has huge benefits for the mental health of people living in cities. There's studies that have shown less drug usage, like uh, prescription drug usage around green spaces, better mental health, better happiness, better physical health. And then on the climate side, yeah, it's a huge impact. There's actually 40 million metric tons of CO2E emitted by commercial lawnmowers every year in this country, which puts it on par with agricultural fuel use. So all the tractors, all the harvesting equipment that we use to grow all of our food 
about the same emissions. And this is just to turn the tall grass into short grass around our homes, offices, municipal parks, soccer fields, all of that. And so we look at our bigger mission at site that goes well beyond mowing. Really, our mission is to change everything about how we take care of all of our outdoor spaces. But mowing is this amazing beachhead into giving landscapers first of their kind autonomous tools, electrifying the really polluting first step of commercial mowers, and then expanding into all the other gas-powered equipment. There is almost no electric equipment in this industry yet. And so we have the chance to go from the 40 million metric tons of CO2E from mowers and expand that into the rest of this industry's pollution, basically. And you mentioned CO2E. So I assume, unlike a car, a lot of these devices, I'm guessing, don't have catalytic converters. So there's different forms of emissions that are being released into the environment when these mowers are out mowing today. Not your mowers, but uh, traditional gas-powered mowers are out mowing today. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Gas mowers are as cheap as you can make them. That means really no emission scrubbing equipment, just the basics of an internal combustion engine and a tailpipe that tries to redirect the emissions away from the landscaper standing on the back, but generally does a pretty poor job of that as well. So their emissions are a mix of CO2 and VOCs and methane, all sorts of really nasty stuff. And Beyond the climate health impact, these mowers have the VOCs that they emit are a huge contributor to air pollution in cities. In fact, the nitrous oxide that mowers emit is a major contributor to ozone here in Colorado because we're so high up. The nitrous oxide reacts with the sunlight and creates ozone that is responsible for really pretty terrible ongoing air pollution in the Denver area. When you talk about the commercial mower impact, how do you define a commercial mower? Does this need to be like a mini tractor looking thing that you sit on? Or does this also include push mowers that are being used for commercial use cases? Like what's the scope of devices that we're talking about here? Sure. So commercial landscaping is really any type of care for outdoor properties that isn't a single family home contract or a golf course. So sort of everything in the middle, like I said. So Office parks, municipal areas, soccer fields, housing developments, schools, all those spaces. A commercial mower could be a mower used for commercial landscaping, but is really any sort of machine that's up to the rugged standards of a professional landscaping contractor. So they're not necessarily large ride-on machines. They can be push mowers. Our commercial mower, M.52, is a stand-on machine. So that means you actually stand on a platform on the back of it, and there are hand controls on top. It's a common form factor. So they come in all shapes and sizes. What's really common about them is that they're rugged. They use really thick steel, and they can really get beat up pretty good and keep on running. Well, let's go into what the scythe mower looks like then. So you mentioned it is a a stand-on mower, maybe just describe it for everybody just so they have in their minds what we're talking about as we start to dive into the product. Sure. M.52 is a 52-inch stand-on commercial mower. So there's two drive wheels next to your feet where you stand, a set of two casters up front. The deck is mounted between them, so the mowing deck where the three blades and the motors to run those three blades are. And then right in front of your body, there's a large podium that holds all of our electronics, the cameras for the autonomy, the batteries, and then has on top of it a a set of hand controls that allow you to maneuver the machine manually. And it's one of the things I think is 
somewhat unique about our approach to this is that we're building a robot that can also be controlled completely manually. This isn't something you see usually in sidewalk delivery robots or warehouse robots and is important for us because we need machines that fit right into landscapers' days. Like they need to be able to load them on and off trailers, mow manually in some cases where autonomy is not great. And so it looks a lot like any other stand-on mower, uh, if listeners have seen a stand-on mower in their communities, but also has this ability to push a few buttons on the top, essentially say go, and then walk away and let it do the mowing for them. And so I'm going to ask two whys next. Uh, you know, as you were deciding to move into this space, why electric and why hasn't that been a major movement yet in this space? And why autonomous? Like what use cases does autonomy solve in this space? And why hasn't that also taken shape in a broad way yet? And on a side note, it does feel like when we imagine dystopian future, AI future, like the killer lawn mowing robot that's chasing you down the sidewalk does come to mind. So uh, I'm curious, as we touch about why autonomy to talk about sort of how you're thinking about all the different safety features and whatnot of the machine too. Totally reasonable. Uh, so <laughs> not not at all. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I think I think why why electric and why autonomous actually go really hand in hand and in particular why there isn't an autonomous or an electric mower that's really become popular to date. So there are a few electric mowers out on the market today, but they're incredibly expensive. You look at the cost of a lawnmower sized internal combustion engine compared to a lawnmower sized battery pack. The ICE engine supply chain has just been really well optimized over the last 50 years. And so it's hard for today's battery packs to be cost competitive. And so mowers are $30,000, $50,000 for electric machines compared to a twelve dollars to 15000 gas mower. So it's been really hard for them to catch on. And then for us going electric, you know, there are sort of two big reasons. One, even in the face of this cost difference. One is, again, our mission is to help humanity take better care of the whole world and all our outdoor spaces and to do that in a way that itself isn't damaging to the world. And so it felt really important to us that right off the bat, we were being zero emissions, that we were having a climate impact beyond just the work that the machine was doing. So that made going electric really a no-brainer for that. Um, but on the other hand, or simultaneously, making a robot that's run off a gas-powered engine adds in all of these complications. I think we take for granted a lot because this is how most of our cars still run and most of our equipment still works. But using exploding fossil fuels to power all sorts of different belts and pulleys on these machines is really fragile and results in a whole lot of moving parts. You know, a gas mower has around 300 different moving parts on it, where our electric machine has about 30. And so that has huge implications for how much complexity there is in the system, how many things can go wrong, which when it's an autonomous machine, you really want to be able to minimize. Also for the lifetime of these machines, we want to be able to keep these machines around for a very long time and mowing and doing great work for the environment. And so minimizing the various pieces that can break is really important. And so for us, it sort of went hand in hand to make it electric and make it autonomous because our job got easier when it was electric to make it autonomous. And then on the autonomy and electric side, we take a different business model approach to selling our machine than a traditional electric mower manufacturer. Like I said, those 
electric mowers are incredibly expensive and folks try and sell them for a huge price. They don't see a lot of traction. We actually charge on a usage basis. So we charge all our customers by acres mode by the machine. And that allows us to sort of undercut this whole price conversation about how expensive machines are, incentivizes us to build a machine that lasts a long time, that works really well, and just changes the whole dynamic around pricing. And do you continue to own the machine then? Or does the landscaping company own the machine and then are paying this licensing fee to use it somehow? Yeah, we continue to own the machine. So we're responsible for all the internals of the machine staying functional from the motors, the batteries, to the compute pieces. And our customers are just responsible for sharpening the blades, keeping the tires inflated, and cleaning and charging the machines every night. So they can bring it back to you for service then as needed? Exactly. Yep. And we can detect when, you know, because there are so few moving parts and it's all instrumented up, we can detect when pretty much anything goes wrong on the machines automatically so that we can get in there and give them service really quickly. I assume these are connected through 5G cell connectivity sort of at all times. Is that accurate? Yeah, they've got cell and Wi-Fi connectivity. Hey, everyone. Yin here, a partner at MCJ Collective. I want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the pod. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, and many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jams for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. And talk a bit about the safety side. So on autonomy, you've got these robots driving around on fields by themselves. What does that look like? What is the technology involved? And how have you assured safety when you've got moving blades running of their own accord? Yeah, so we say internally, you know, there really is no autonomy without safety. It's priority number one. Going back and forth in straight lines is actually the easy part. The part that is a challenge for any autonomous machine and that we really focus our time and energy on is doing that in a way that's safe to all of the people we might be around and the environment that we're operating in. So we've got two main sets of sensors that we use to understand the world around us. First, we have eight high dynamic range cameras mounted at the top of the machine. So a pair of eyes, basically a stereo pair in each cardinal direction, you know, forwards, backwards, left, right. That gives us a full 360 degree view of what's around the machine. And then as a second layer of safety, sort of another peel back the onion, the other layer is the ultrasonic sensors. So those are akin to the parking sensors that are in your car that give us a very complementary way to understand if there's anything near us. Ultrasonic sensors are super resistant to mud or grass clippings, say, and so they'll continue to function even if they get dirty and they're nice and low to the ground so that they have this good visibility to anything that could pop up around us. 
And then we fuse those sensors together to get a really comprehensive understanding of where we're operating and, and what's safe. And how much training do the landscaping companies do for a mower for a given plot of land? I'm going to use an analogy that I'm sure you don't like, but I have a Roomba in my house just getting it to understand like where my couch is and don't go over that rug because you're going to get stuck in it, et cetera, is a, frankly, is a lot of work to manage. <laughs> and these are much, much bigger machines. I assume they're much more high tech machines as well, presumably. But explain what the process of learning looks like for your machines. Yeah, we luckily have a lot more compute available to us than a Roomba. So we can make the machine much, much smarter. And, and again, we're able to actually have a human drive that machine around the property in order to teach it more about it. But the basic premise is if you're a commercial landscaper, you've got an M.52 in your truck and you take it to a new property that it's never been to before. And none of our M.52 units have been to before. You unload it from the trailer by driving it off, bring it up into the field and teach it the boundary of each contiguous mobile area on that property. So you drive around, you know, the northwest corner of the campus or the east soccer field or whatever, teach it all of those areas. And then when you want it to mow, either that time or when you bring any other machine back, you just put it out into the field, tell it which direction you want it to stripe, how high you want the grass to be cut, hit go, and it plans all of it on its own and just takes off. I'm Picturing a world, too, where this is happening, and I assume there's very little noise and very little smell, which are two things we're accustomed to noticing about uh, lawn care. And that, I presume, is to some degree a pretty big game changer. It is. Smell the grass, not the gas, our tagline. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, it's huge for landscapers. I mean, it's huge for their customers as well. Everyone's been annoyed by a lawnmower at some point driving by their office window, especially during the pandemic. Everybody on Zoom calls knew the pain of a lawnmower or a leaf blower going by. And so being able to give contractors this option that's much quieter and just better for their employees, better for the environment, has been a game changer for some of them bidding on new contracts themselves, where they're able to say, hey, look, we're green, we're electric, we're quiet, and we're autonomous, we're super innovative don't you want us to come and be your landscaper of choice instead of those folks rocking the 20-year-old broken down gas machines? And for the landscapers who are using you in trials today, what are you finding that they are using their time doing while the mowers are out autonomously mowing? So basically every landscaper out there today is short-staffed and trying to do more with the people that they have than they really are able to in the hours of work each week. They frequently in the spring run into significant overtime pay because they're so short-staffed and so hard to find folks. And so what we find is they just do a better job of really fulfilling the contracts that they already have today. One of our customers in Texas actually had a property that he put M.52 out on, and it was one of their least favorite properties. This account manager used to hide from the property manager there. He was just terrified that he would be lambasted every time he showed up. And it went from being one of their worst accounts to one of their favorite accounts and actually expanding with that property manager because they were able to finally take care of all of the things that they weren't doing before, pick up the trash, do the edging, There's a lot of trash on this property in particular. And so being able to pick up the trash was a huge boost for that relationship. And so, yeah, it's nothing groundbreaking. It's really just do the job that they signed up for. And then 
as we roll more and more of these machines out with these same customers, we look at them being able to take on new jobs as they actually split the time of a crew of six into two crews of three, they can actually send that second crew to an entirely new property and grow their business with the same number of people that they had in the first place, which is a huge enabler and and point of leverage for contractors. One of the things that, again, I, I think is so fascinating about what you're building and really encapsulates a lot of the whole Electrify Everything movement is this notion that not only is this better for the climate, for emissions, but it's a better product. So you're talking about A, it doesn't smell, B, it doesn't make noise, C, the lawn care owners, the landscapers who are managing these now can take care of other tasks while it's out running autonomously in the fields. D, it helps them manage the staffing that they have because they're all short-staffed and they're all struggling to find labor. And then I guess the last question I would have with all those benefits, coming back to the model and the cost model, they're paying you a fee to use this, a utilization fee. At some point, there is a break-even question for them, which is I either need to invest cash up front and buy a new set of gas mowers, or I need to switch over to Scythe and now just have a flat cost basis that I'm operating off of each month. How are you seeing people make that calculation? And what does the equipment replacement cycle look like in the traditional ice motor world? Sure. First, I'll add E, it's really fun to drive. It's kind of like (laughs) going from your Ford Focus to a Tesla. All of a sudden, you get a lot more power and bang for your buck, and it's silent to boot. So I think that's a a non-trivial factor about why it's uh, more interesting for landscapers. But yeah, so landscapers pay us not a flat fee, but actually by the acres mowed by each robot each month. And that's an important distinction because it means... Everyone at Scythe, the way we know we win is by helping our customers get as much work done as possible because the more work they get done, the more money they can bring in. That means the more money we make. So it's this virtuous cycle. It also means that right off the bat on day one, they're seeing value and they're seeing an ROI from these machines because the upfront cost is basically just the cost of shipping a new machine to them. And that means that As soon as they get out there, they're getting more work out of the machine, basically, than they're paying for, and it's immediately valuable to them. The other piece of this equation, like you said, the equipment refresh cycle, it's like every two to maybe four years, they're replacing their commercial mowers. And so that's somewhere between half and a quarter of their fleet every spring is brand new because these machines only last a couple thousand hours. They got a lot of use put on them. What's the, at what price point? Roughly 12 to 15K. Oh my goodness gracious. Wow. Yeah, the engine just gives out. <laughs> That's incredible running a, obviously a, a cash flow oriented business, having to manage that amount of expense refresh. And then not to mention the amount of turnover they have in their employee pool. So basically half their mowers and half their employees turn over almost every year, which is a huge headache for them on the cost side, on the just the logistics. A lot of them will refer to themselves as iron collectors and that they just have these piles of scrap metal in their yards that are broken down mowers that they use for spare parts. But ultimately, the engine has just given out. It needs a full rebuild. It's not worth it at that point. And so it gives us this opportunity to really easily slide into their fleets over time. If they're getting rid of 
half of their machines, we can just pick a few off every year until we ramp up and scale and then really replace their fleets in earnest quickly. And why haven't the incumbent mowing companies tried to build a similar product? Yeah, everybody in this industry is thinking about it. We go to all the trade shows and everybody out there is talking about electrification, talking about autonomy, but it's just super far outside their wheelhouse. You know, if you look at the commodified mower brands in this industry, which there are many of, there's probably 15 different commercial mower brands that are almost identical. They wouldn't say this, but almost identical, save for a what color they paint the steel. And software and electrification is just really outside their know-how. They know supply chain management incredibly well. They have these deep networks of contract manufacturers and suppliers to build really cost-optimized machines that will last reasonably long for how much they cost. But when it starts to get into optimizing the compute or all of the autonomy things, sensor placement, sensor selection. It's just not something they're used to. So there's a technology barrier there that you all feel like you have an advantage on just because they know how to essentially assemble and market traditional vehicle products. They bend steel really well. (laughs) Yeah, And you guys are coming at it from a very different technology angle. And it sounds like you're also pioneering a business model that maybe they're not used to seeing with a product-led, services-oriented business model. They know how to market and sell, right? They have super deep dealership networks, which are a major asset in a traditional business. You know, we've seen this with the electric car transition. Ford, GM, they've got these massive dealership networks. They are an asset when it comes to selling traditional cars that need a lot of service. But then you switch to the Tesla Rivian model. And all of a sudden, you only have to take your car in maybe every couple of years. And the dealership's business really just evaporates overnight. And and so for us, coming at this from a blank slate, again, looking at much, much reduced maintenance costs, we can take a different approach. We can bring a different culture to this industry. And I think that's a critical thing is being a really innovative business from our core. We're not, everything at Scythe is not optimized at all around cost savings and shaving pennies off of every fastener on the machine. We're really focused on revenue growth, on innovation, on giving new tools to landscapers to better take care of outdoor spaces and do it more sustainably. And so what has your early traction looked like? If I understand you're in sort of trial phase and pre-order phase at the moment, talk to us a little bit about the state of Scythe in the market today. Yeah, so we built a run of our pre-production M.52 last year. We opened up reservations a la Rivian or Tesla around getting landscapers to express their interest and get their spot in line, basically, to get M.52 when we roll out to their region. So we opened up reservations a little over a year ago. We've got about 7,500 mowers reserved from dozens of customers across the country. We're really excited to get these in their fleets over the coming years. And then we've got a handful of machines out in Texas and Florida today that we are at, I mean, we're getting paid to mow. Nobody gets free mowing, but getting customers to give us great early feedback on these machines and really dial them in before we ramp up production over the next year to start putting them out en masse. Why Texas and Florida? They've got really long growing seasons. We've got some really excited early customers and team members in both areas. Just being warm, being able to mow and test year round is a huge asset. 
And how big is the overall market that you see being able to go after? So the landscaping services industry, again, it's the sneaky out of sight, but it's a $170 billion industry. So a lot of work goes into taking care of all of these green spaces. And that's just in the US every year, $170 billion spent on it. Commercial mowing is somewhere around a quarter of that, just the mowing on commercial properties. So we're looking at 40 or $50 billion of maintenance that we can capture with just M.52. And talk to us a bit about where you are from a financing perspective. You all just announced a significant Series B round led by a climate tech-oriented fund, Energy Impact Partners. Share a bit more about your history there in terms of growing the business from the beginning to where you are today. Yeah, we just closed our $42 million Series B. Really excited to have Energy Impact Partners and Arcturn Ventures on board to amazing climate funds. And we're going to take this money and use it to grow the business, grow the team, get more mowers out there, and look at really scaling the business to start getting rid of all of these dirty mowers over the next couple of years. And what's next? Obviously, you're focused, I would presume, on getting to market with the current mower set and fulfilling these reservations. How do you see the company evolving as that happens? Yeah, really trying to stay laser focused on just building and scaling M.52. I think many startups, especially hardware startups, start to get a little bit of a success from their first product and then their eyes get really big and they start to overreach. So I want to make sure that we've got M.52 out there en masse and our customers know how to operate. We know how to operate it before we start letting our eyes go astray. But from there, there's lots of different opportunities, both on the hardware and the software side to help landscapers do more from a smaller mower, maybe a larger mower, uh, and then all sorts of other equipment where the pattern of operation looks very similar to mowing, but helps landscapers get more work done from aeration to leaf removal, cedar sprayers, all sorts of other tasks done in landscaping. So would you say your true north is electrification? Your true north is autonomy and robotics? I mean, how do you sort of prioritize that growth vector of the business in that regard? Yeah, our true north is helping people take better care of the outdoors. That's maybe kind of ambiguous, but I think that requires both electrification and autonomy and web solutions that help you just help these businesses to think more clearly and plan better so that they can do more work and be more efficient in how they take care of these outdoor spaces. I think like we were talking about with sort of the business model side of things, the electrification, the autonomy, they really go hand in hand. It'd be really hard to do the autonomy without the electrification and vice versa. And so building the hardware, the software, the cloud software, the operations, the manufacturing, all simultaneously means we've got a lot of problems to solve and really interesting challenges at Scythe. But I think it puts us on a path to being successful because we have all of this knowledge under one roof and because all of it feeds back into the core business. And where do you need help today? You've raised the successful Series B. I presume you have roles you need to fill. You're looking for customer adoption and more orders. For anyone listening, regardless of what aspect they're listening from, where would you like people to help out? Yeah, we've got a bunch of roles open on our website today. So we're hiring, cross-engineering, manufacturing, customer operations. We'd love to meet folks who are interested in the climate fight and 
see something that might be a fit for them or great folks who don't see a fit. We've got a sort of catch-all role about people who love robots on our hiring page that we'd love people to apply to. We've got landscaping contractors out there or folks who have family or no contractors. We'd love to meet them. We're always looking to add more great folks who are interested in transitioning their businesses to the next generation of outdoor power equipment. And then just other folks on their own climate journeys. I am a member of MCJ and love meeting other founders in the space, other folks working to build great businesses and transition us away from fossil fuels. I love it. Jack reached out to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, who who are the other climate founders that you know in Boulder? Because I want to help continue to build community in Boulder around climate tech. So anyone local who's listening, uh, definitely reach out to Jack and It's great to see more of a community continuing to form. Uh, Boulder obviously already has a fantastic community of folks working on climate solutions. Jack, what else should I have asked? This was great. I think you about covered all the pieces. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for going after a solution that, again, may be non-obvious, but as soon as everyone listens to this, you're going to start noticing it's going to become more and more obvious, I think, as it has to me. Again, it's just a reminder that when it comes to electrifying everything, sure, EVs are amazing, heat pumps are amazing, but there are lots of other technologies in our lives, in our daily lives, that are going to be undergoing transformation over the next five, 10 years with what you're building inside, you're tackling a big one. So thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me on, Cody, and thanks for running this podcast. It's great. Anybody out there sees their local landscape with some gas mowers, tell them all about Scythe Robotics and how they can do more with the crew they've already got and get rid of all of their polluting equipment. All right. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know via Twitter at MCJ Pod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.